This is Lego Football. Well, thank you for joining us. It's time to sing the praises of the Scudetto-winning coach of Napoli, Lucero Spalletti, this season's Serie A Coach of the Year. Eccomi, you're with David Farini, your Lega host. It's time for a dose of Italian football. I'm joined by Serie A journalist for Forbes Sport, Emmett Gates. Let's talk Luciano Spalletti. Emmett, it's time to delve into the greatness of the Spallettone, who's been named the Serie A coach of the year. This is also known as the Premio Bulgarelli, named after Giacomo Bulgarelli, ex-Bologna legend. Emmett, how are things? No complaints and looking forward to talking about Spallettone himself. Yeah. Uh, coach of the year. Leading Napoli to the first Scudetto since Diego Armando. So, yeah, looking forward to delving deep into Spalletti. Yeah, any excuse to bring up the great Diego Armando. <laughs> uh, lovely to hear your Irish accent off the record. I was asking you how to introduce you. You said as the Irish national treasure. Well, I present you. This is the Irish <laughs> national treasure. Northern Irish, I should specify here, right? Yeah, I mean, Irish, Northern Irish is all the same, to be honest. I mean, to be honest, I wanted to go for cultural icon, but you kind of went towards national treasure. So, you know, we'll meet in the middle. Yeah, I've got a few other ideas in my mind, but I won't, <laughs> I won't voice those on this pod. Following the near misses at Roma, Spalletti has matured like a fine Tuscan wine to eventually get the ultimate prize, that Scudetto, as you mentioned, as everyone knows. In this pod, we will analyse how Spalletti took Napoli to glory, his relationship with the players, the city itself, his history in Serie A previously. We'll dive into his cultural strategies of the past and present. Some precedents set this season for Napoli under his tenure. Personal honours and some silverware. Basically, we're just paying tribute to him. We might even go into his future at the club. If we want to speculate, let's see how the pod goes. I've also got other voices contributing to this podcast, including Adriano Del Monte, who is a pundit. You will have seen him around and everyone else will have heard him and also Joe Fischetti from the Fortinapoli pod, maybe some others. We'll see how it goes. Um, so Spalletti, he was the coach that transformed Napoli, actually improving the side, the method of play, while being the manager tasked with the overhaul of ousting key players and replacing them, Emmett, human resources. With Juntoli, the player request for the summer, he identified what was lacking deep in the transfer window uh, back in August and September last year in 2022. Spalletti proved that forward planning was one of his fortes. How good was that Mercato right at the end there to bring in the likes of Raspadori and Simeone? Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you look at Napoli over the years, especially in the in the Maurizio Sarri era, you, would, you always would have said they're a good maybe 12, 13 players or sometimes even just a good 1-11. to 11. But I think in the aftermath of so many departures last summer, I think it was, a you know, Spalletti no doubt recognised that Ossiemen did have a, a tendency to, to get injured or pick up some kind of injury, you know, throughout the, throughout the season. His first two, two seasons in Italy, he had picked up injuries and Spalletti no doubt recognised that if they were really going to push on, uh, you know, for the Scudetto or even just to finish in the top three, he would have needed more depth, especially up front. And bringing in, you know, Raspadori and Giovanni Simeone, I think, was very, you know, shrewd calls. Um, and definitely, you know, when me and you, David, we went to we went to uh, see Napoli twice this season, and the game against Criminese, if you remember, it was one-one for the longest time, and then Giovanni Simeone came up with a 
uh, ahead of goal to kind of to give Napoli the lead again, and then Napoli went on to win four one, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you are right. I was there. That was at the Zini in, in Cremona. That was magnificent that that evening there. So good. And for those of you who don't know about that, we've done a Maradona tour for the Lego Football Podcast, and that is up on our YouTube, and you can see it on. We've got a TikTok, Emmett. Believe it or not. And also, they're on the Twitter page for Lego Football. Emmett, I absolutely agree with everything you just said. The way Simeone was able to contribute, Raspadori. Let's go into Spalletti territory here because this is a part about Spalletti. So I will segue us back to him. His relationship with the players and Naples, the actual city itself. Naples has taught the world how to celebrate a Scudetto. This is what he said uh, following the Scudetto win and how to make everyone participate in the joy of the city, the happiness that has no boundaries. These are some of the quotes from the Spalletoni himself. He said on receiving the Bulgarelli Awards, he said it's like the Oscar for cinema, but for calcio, uh, for those in his generation, he said that Giacomo Bulgarelli has been an important player of the history of Bologna to his perseverance. Well, that's what he's done. He's persevered at Napoli and receiving this award in the year in which Napoli became champions of Italy with a cry of tutto per lei, everything for her, is of particular importance for him. And for this too, he wants to thank those who allowed him to receive it, namely the players and Napoli culture. Here he's thanking his players directly. He's kind of redirecting the credit and he's giving it back to the players and also the club. Magnanimous. What a man. Yeah, exactly. And it's 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 kind of, I know I don't think you'd have to have a, you know, a, a dark heart or a hardened heart not to be happy for, for Spalletti finally getting, you know, the Scudetto that he wanted, that, he, that, he, that his career almost warranted or merited for so long. You know, obviously he'd won, he'd won the title with Zenit St. Petersburg in Russia, but he had never won it in his homeland. And to not win it with one of the established giants, you know, oh, yeah. with Inter or even Roma, you know, he went close a couple of times in the in the mid to late 2000s, but to win it with Napoli, and especially coming after a summer in which so many of the big players left. I mean, I think, you know, everybody was kind of willing Napoli on Yes, for Napoli and what it meant to the city, but also for Spalletti. It's almost like a Lifetime Achievement Award winning this Scudetto at this point. You know, he's 60, 65 um, years of age. So I think everybody was happy for him. And he's such a likable he's such a likeable coach and he's always got a smile on his face. And you know what? Napoli played fantastic football into the bargain. It wasn't like, it wasn't like Napoli scraped, you know, to the Scudetto in a classic maybe Jose Mourinho fashion or a classic you know Fabio Capello fashion of grinding out one nil wins like Napoli were enterprising they were the best team in Europe for a large stretch of this season and you can't just you can't not but be happy for him and the way he's given it back he hasn't made it about him he's made it about the city and about the team and about the people and he's kind of he has integrated himself into the Neapolitan way of, of living and it's it's fantastic to see. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost as if he had to go away from culture. They missed him. He came back in with that philosophy that brought so many goals for Napoli, obviously leading in most goals for the season. And I, I guess it's like um, a farmer wants a Scudetto. He went off and did some farming and then he came back with a club like Napoli. And he would have been walking into the club thinking, okay, president's got a bit of money, decent squad, Mertens, Insigne. Yeah, yeah, we can, we can go on with, with these kinds of players. Koulibaly 
It's an absolute rock at the back. We've got a spinner in goals. Next thing, they're all gone. You know, I've, I've got a little funny feeling that during that little spell in 2021-22, when Napoli kind of fell off the radar at the end because they were in the top three for a while, they were kind of challenging. Once they had three or four bad games, then he started planning for the next season and started thinking, well, maybe Lorenzo Insigne, would we be better off without him? Not that he's not a club legend, because he is, but is it better to sort of let go? And then maybe when you start letting go of one, you can kind of expel the demons. And I don't want Napoli supporters to think that, you know, the likes of Fabian Ruiz and Insigne and Mertens are demons because Mertens is the all-time leading goal scorer for the club, beating Hamzik and Maradona. So they're very well respected. And I feel so sorry as a Napoli supporter that they can't be there to celebrate this. But from a strategic standpoint, this is where I'm going. It's as though... He needed to first get rid of Insigne because he wasn't that great in the dressing room. And I think other pundits that follow Napoli close enough would know that there was a little bit of a disconnect with Lorenzo Insigne there, despite his individual brilliance on the pitch. So he was able to get rid of some of the elements that were keeping Napoli at a specific standpoint. They couldn't progress past that. And I'm sure Spalletti probably didn't think that they would win it in the first year after such a big turnover. But, and going to the players, he said, my players worked hard all year round. They did everything very well, giving great availability in training and in matches. They demonstrated that attachment to the shirt. And that's something that Giacomo Bulgarelli was an absolute master at. So he's sharing the credit all through his press conference through accepting the Bulgarelli award. He said he's always believed that he was dealing with a strong team. He was convinced of this and a great job was also done by the sporting director, Cristiano Giuntoli, which he's also diverting credit to. And finally, Spalletti finished with, I gave it all my time and dedicated everything to it. Absolutely poetic. Spalletti has never really struck me as a manager who's very egocentric and makes it all about him. Um, unlike, you know, certain managers, will not, will not name names. <laughs> um, but I think this has been a collaborative effort between obviously Spalletti, his players, you know, Cristiano Giuntoli, even Aurelio De Laurentiis, you know, the whole club has worked together. And I think even, De La, you know, you touched on Insigne there. I think even De Laurentiis kind of made a, you know, a non too subtle remark recently about, you know, there was players in the dressing room and they were, they were bad for the for the locker room and he had to get them out. And that, that could have been, you know, a subtle nod towards Insigne. Or maybe Mertens, or even Koulibaly. It's it, he wasn't exactly, uh, he didn't exactly state who he was talking about, but it was clearly one of those the big names that left in the summer. Um, and I, and I wrote about this at the at the beginning of the season. You know, after we'd seen you know Charles Velia a few times in action, and that Insigne and Fabian Ruiz, for as good as they are technically, they slowed Napoli down. They made Napoli so predictable. Absolutely agree. And then. And when you've seen Charles Velia on the left, Politano on the right, Osimhen through the middle, Napoli, and then you, you like Anguissa, uh, Lobatka, and Zielinski in midfield, Napoli were such a more dynamic team. Lightning quick. And lightning quick. Whereas Insigne, by the end of his Napoli time, he was a one-trick pony. Yeah. You know, you knew what he was going to do. Get the ball, cut in on the left, or from the left into in the middle of the field and try and bend the ball into the top yeah exactly he did the same thing six times a game and it maybe worked once every ten games 
he becomes so predictable. He he was never the quickest anyway, Insignia, but whatever pace he had, he had already lost by that point. And getting not getting rid of him, because I think maybe Napoli wanted to keep him, we'll never really know, but the decision to let him go or for him to go to Toronto, I think it was the best for everyone concerned. And getting rid of Fabio Ruiz, again, technically exquisite, but, you know, very slow, slowed the game down. Um, it was the best thing that, you know, Juntili, De Laurentiis, Spalletti had ever done. And I think now you're seeing this team, they're so much more dynamic. And, you know, they can, you know, it's a cut by a thousand knives. They can cut, they can cut you in any different direction. You know, you have Politano on the right, George Vellian on the left, Osman through the middle. You have the midfield that are so dynamic. You know, Zielinski gets forward and Guisi gets forward. Those goal scores, you know, Ossiman took a lot of the credit because he, you know, he rattled in, you know, he's, what's he on, 20 23, I think. 23. Oh, across the season? Uh, yeah, in all yeah. competitions. You know, he's nearly 30, 30 goals. But, you know, Zielinski, you know, chipped in with a few. Anguisa got a few. Elmas. Almas, you know, chipped in with a few. And then you've obviously, as we talked about, Giovanni Simeone, Raspadori. Um, you know the goals came from the goals arrived from everywhere. And Napoli are such a better team because those big names left. Absolutely, uh, I think they had to lose that predictability, as you yeah. said about Insigne. Energetic, a little crazy. They live it in a very deep way. That's what Spalletti said also upon winning the Scudetto. He's talking about Napoli. He said it's a joyous city. It's taught the world how to celebrate the trophy, or any trophy for that matter. We will come back to his relationship with the city and the players a little later on. I think we should have a look at how the season actually played out. We're not going to do a deep dive into exactly what happened and, you know, the the key moments in specific key matches. We're just going to take a, a quick look at some of the tactics and some of the general stats here. Napoli equaling the Serie A record of becoming mathematically unassailable with five matches remaining. He joins, I think it was Torino, Juve and Fiorentina there, winning it with five match days to go. They won 25 of 33 to get there because they won it on match day 33, drawing five and losing just three times. That's amazing stuff there, scoring nine more goals than Inter, conceding the fewest as well, the best home and best away record. I think it was the best joint home record at that stage and the best away record by about, I think, nine or 10 points, which is absolutely amazing. And as you said, we went to Cremona and we saw the way that they were able to overcome sides that were parking the bus and sides that were just determined not to let them score. But Spalletti had those uh, other assets, prized assets off the bench. When you think of Simeone and Raspadori to previous years, when they had a Pavoletti or an Inglese or whoever they wanted to bring in and kind of just gamble on, because some of these uh, risks were just a gamble. Petagna as well, although Petagna offered a different uh, strategy by bringing him in or allowing him to start every now and then, you know, three to six goals, that's where his, his uh, range is. And we've seen that at Monza this season as well, but they didn't have the dynamism of Raspadori and Simeone. And also Raspadori can double up in other positions and even go deep into the midfield for periods of the game to relieve someone else. So your thoughts on the way that Napoli were able to handle themselves and rotate players especially when Osimhen was unavailable because you were there in Naples to see them take on Ajax. We went to Cremona to watch that game. There was no Victor Osimhen back then. Yeah, exactly. And you make, you make a, a brilliant point in that, you know, the, the, that stretch, like I think it was in September and October, like that time that we went to see um, Napoli, it was early October. And Osimhen, I think, had been out for two or three weeks or a month at that stage. 
and Napoli were just cleaning up everyone. You know, he, he, Ossiman, if I remember rightly, he got injured in the Liverpool game, the 4 1 in Naples. He, 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 he did. Injured. He missed a penalty and then yeah. went off. Yeah. And then he was out for like a month. And I think the Ajax game that we went to see was his first game back. And he scored. Uh, he came off the bench to score. So he was out for around about a month, three weeks. So And it was just from that hustle up forward. It was just a high press. Yeah. And he, and, he, and he pinched the ball. I think it was off Klassen, who had no idea he was coming from behind. Yeah. Apex Predator. That's what I keep calling him. He's just going to get exactly. you, whether you like it or not. Whether you see him coming, he's going to get you. Exactly. And, you know, the thing that, you know, Napoli went through that whole phase unbeaten, destroying teams. Like, they, they beat they beat Ajax 7-1. 8-1, what was it? I, I, I'm nearly sure it was 7. Away from home, it was 6-1. Six, six, yeah. And again, that was without Ossiman. They beat them at home 4-2. Ossiman just came off the bench. So the, the likes of Giovanni Simeone and Raspadori give Spalletti options. And I think Simeone had that knack of scoring clutch goals. If you think of the, the header he scored at San Siro against Milan, that really, to me, really signalled that there was a belief there that Napoli could go on to win this. Um, yeah, agree. Like, Simeone had that knack of coming up uh, with vital goals in the way that Patania or Pavoletti or Roberto Inglesi simply didn't. They were basically just yeah. numbers in the squad to pad out the numbers. Whereas Simeone and Raspadori, you know, Raspadori, he scored the winner against Juve in Turin. They made a vital difference, like a crucial difference. They weren't just there to make up the numbers. And I think that's the yeah. difference between this Napoli side and previous Napoli sides. Yeah, they are a team of immortals now. They joined Bigons in uh, Bianchi's Napoli from the 80s. So let's have a look at the way that Spalletti sent his side out there to take on opponents. He obviously preferred the 4-3-3, and he's developed that from his 4-2-3-1. The possession-heavy side that looks to build up with short passing. They can isolate the last defender with the big Victor Osimhen up forward, trying to make a run with a long ball over the top, and Spalletti entices opposing sides to press high so Napoli can play over them or if they sit deep they can play through them because they're so brilliant with their ground passing and sometimes he staggers the midfield around and they're so unpredictable it's not just Kvaratskeli and Politano or Lozano on the right and left it, it, the unpredictability comes everywhere and he's got so many different options whether it's an Anguissa and Dombele can come off the bench and offer something different Elmas can go and sit deep as well in midfield so absolute genius uh, between Spalletti and Juntoli to come up with this recipe. Labocca is the deep pivot, and I'd hate to see him go from Napoli. I mean, I can't imagine if he was injured for a long time, or Adi Lorenzo, for example. They're so integral to the way that Napoli play. He's the deep pivot, and if he's cut out of the game, then Anguissa takes over, and Zielinski can get forward. And so they're, they're constantly rotating. Sometimes Zielinski will come back in defense as well to give or to lend a hand to Labocca, especially if they're, they're under the pump, which is not that often because they've all usually got possession of the ball. Di Lorenzo and Mario Rui or uh, Matias Oliveira, they have the variability with both being easy outlet options in the build-up. They can push high to provide width. Quite uh, Scalia stays high, but mainly occasionally uh, can drop to uh, bring that fullback that's marking him out of position. Kim and Ramani, we can't, we can't forget the two centre-halves. So crucial with their distribution because most of the ball goes through the centre-halves when you play a zonal back line that doesn't really like to man-mark and come off their line much. They like to watch and preserve the, the space in front of them. The midfield trio, they love those triangular passes, as I said before, remaining compact and occasionally staggered. But Ngisa, those driving runs forward. Uh, Zielinski, the most creative responsibility of the side from midfield. 
Spalletti using Zielinski and Cavada to disorient opposing midfields and, and low blocks as well from opposing defences. Uh, Politano and Lozano, they could tuck in. So Di Lorenzo would have room to get forward. We saw the captain get up and score goals. And we saw that even in the Champions League, uh, especially against Eintracht Frankfurt. Uh, they could create central overloads as well. Osman was always lurking as the biggest aerial threat. I think he scored twice as many headers as anyone else in Serie A this season. Then you've got Raspadori, Elmas, Simeone, a bunch of other players I haven't even mentioned. Defensively, the mechanics of the Gegen press that led to them getting so many high offensive turnovers. You don't always score from those, but eventually something's going to happen for you. And you might only score one out of 80 high turnovers, but still, those are those one percenters, the goals that will get you through a match, get you the result, get you the extra two points instead of drawing. You know, they also had the structured default press when high up the pitch. Yeah, and I think, I think too, you know, you also have. Zielinski making late runs into the box as well. You know, if if the space opens up in front of him, he was always the one that would go further, say, than Bra. You know, obviously Labadka is the, the pivot in, in midfield, the regista, if you will. And Gisa was kind of the, the box-to-box marauder. But so was Zielinski, and Zielinski chipped in with some vital goals. Um, I think he's got seven in Serie A this season. So, uh, you know, I, I, as I said earlier, Napoli can, you know, it's, it's death by a thousand cuts. So and you've just outlined the, the various ways in which Napoli could hurt you and Zielinski's late runs into the wax was another another facet of that as well as like play through the wings or over the ball over the top for Aussie men's pace so I think Napoli the, the way I always look at football is the more unpredictable you are the better because teams can't work you out you go one way you know you the opposition plans for your plan A so you pivot to plan B if they plan for that plan B, then you know you change again. You go to plan C. The more plans you have in place, the better. The more unpredictable you are, the better you are. And I think we saw that with Napoli is that they're very unpredictable. It's not just Carlos Velia. It's not just Osimhen. It's not Politano. It's the midfield three, or you've Mario Louis, Mario Rui, sorry, can ping balls him with his left foot. You know you've Di Lorenzo on the opposite flank who bombs forward. Napoli, you know you've Rafmani there that could score from corners. You know Jim Mingay or Kim Mingay, sorry got a couple from corners this season so nobody can hurt you everywhere and that is the hallmark of a good side sure and with Kim Mingay is that a a, a a traditional way to say his name You, I know you've lived in South Korea so no that was just a mispronunciation <laughs> <laughs> so yeah look I agree with everything you just said as well I think this is a, a Napoli tribute hour and it's all down to Luciano himself the great coach, the fullback involvement in attacking phases, absolutely crucial with Rui on the left and, and Di Lorenzo, the fullback's inside positioning that allows the offensive midfielder to stay beyond the first line of defence and, and focus on forward runs towards the box. And at the same time, the wingers can remain wide in Lozano or Cavalazcalia. Uh, when the opposition parks the bus, Napoli exploit them with excellent passing skills. Uh, they can create that high-density uh, area to attract pressing before switching the side. So they'll open up space by tilting to the left, for example, then all of a sudden it'll be loads of space for Lozano, who's out wide as Di Lorenzo comes in to maybe take on Gisa's spot, who's moved into another area of the pitch, the positional play that everyone thinks Guardiola's invented, but I think Luciano Spalletti has to take some credit for that, for, for drawing up the blueprint back in the mid-noughties, uh, 2005, you know, back with Udinese, back with Roma. And that opens up the new route to goal by doing those uh, kind of switches. And 
the scripted moves that they've got. Everyone knows Guardiola with his training sessions. He's got the field mapped out into squares and lines and half spaces and, and you know, the, the central, the hubs and players are allowed to go into different zones and you can't have more than three players in the defensive line at the same time. He doesn't want a fourth there clocking up space. He wants them as an outlet, etc. But, you know, the Bocca and, and Kim, they were crucial through the determined defending and, and game-changing interceptions. So Spalletti is responsible for a lot of this new age thinking of coaching. Uh, Kim won 73% of his defensive duels and 57% of aerial duels. He was an absolute monster in his first season. The Bocca 10 balls recovered on average per game. I think the pass completion rate in the final third, in the attacking third, was close to 90% for Napoli. So that is the unpredictability because the way that they approach the box is usually with angled passing. And someone like Cavada drawing in two defenders and then dishing off to his Yelinski if he's on the park or it might be Raspadori, whoever's out there. And that is why other sides come undone because Serie A probably still is, not as defensive as it used to be, but probably still has the best defensive structures of the top five leagues in Europe because I, I can't really say that the Premier League has uh, better defending overall than Serie A, nor the French, nor the Spanish, nor the Dutch, nor the Portuguese. So still, despite the defensive efforts perhaps being more diluted these days, that is also a factor that plays into uh, Luciano Spalletti where it's his thinking from 15, 20 years ago that has made Serie A evolve a little bit more attacking and also the fact that Cavadas and, and Ossimans, they will have space if one or the other can take an extra man away from them. And it's so tough when you've got so much talent across the pitch because even though Anguissa isn't the kind of midfielder that can bomb from outside the box, and we have seen him do it, he can take a free kick as well, but it's your Zielinski's and even the Bocca sometimes. He can sort of side foot one home from the edge of the 18-yard box. So, so much opulence off the bench in the starting eleven. And that's something that we hadn't seen in last season's Napoli when they still had Mertens at the club and the likes of Insigne. Spalletti known for getting the most out of his limited resources. And we've touched on that now in, you know, in present day, but he was also able to convert Roma from being that mediocre defensive unit to a title contender through an attacking mindset. And that's where I guess I'm going here, Emmett, is he brought in that 4-2-3-1. Maybe he didn't bring it in, but he made it what it is today. And he brought that in, what, 2005, 2006? Yeah, exactly. Like He was arguably the first coach to popularise the, the false name um, in 2005, 2006, 2006, 2007, you know, years before Pep Guardiola did it with, with Messi at Barcelona. You know, Roma had a, a striker shortage and so he moved Tari into a central position and he basically the premise was Tari would drop deep and the likes of Simone Parada, Daniele De Rossi, um, I was going to say David Pizarro, but he was the, the Labatka of that, that Roma team. But he would have Rodrigo Tadei would all bomb forward. Tari was obviously Tari, a creative genius, was good enough to, to pick out the runs and the, the space that they were running into. And he, he also got the best out of Tari, especially in that first spell. You know, Tari won the Golden Boot in 2006, 2007, off the back of Spalletti repurposing him as a false nine. Yeah. He made Roma for a while were definitely the most attractive team to watch in Europe. Um, and it was funny, I remember when they played, they played Manchester United in 
uh, consecutive years in the Champions League in the quarterfinal. And I remember Spalletti commenting that uh, Sir Alex Ferguson was actually more Italian than he was. Because Ferguson, especially in the away leg at the, at the Stadio Olimpico, he played like a 4-5-1, basically soaked up Roma's pressure and hit on the counter with Wayne Rooney, Cristiano Ronaldo, Carlos Tevez. And Spalletti then came out afterwards and said, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson's more Italian than I am because, you know, Spalletti's Roma were very expansive and they played nice football. And it was a shame, actually, that that Roma side didn't win a Scudetto either in 07 or 08 because they definitely played the, the best football in Italy. Unfortunately, they just, they lacked the experience of, you know, Inter at that time under Roberto Mancini, like, did a must, you know, Ibra was there, Crespo there, Luis Figo was there, Matarazzi was there, you know, that was Patrick Vieira was there, you know, that was a very good Inter team and Roma ran them yeah, close. But yeah, I think everybody, Roma become everybody's, you know, neutral team. Everybody wanted to see Roma win them because they played such cavalier football, as you said, in the 4-2-3-1 um, and he got the best out of Tati and you know I think we all remember Tati's goal for Roma against Sampdoria the volley <clears throat> the left foot oh, volley from way special. special and he got a round of applause from the from the Sampdoria faithful um, like that all happened under Spalletti and Tati ended up winning the golden shoe and he was Capo Caninieri and yeah like Spalletti was sorry in the mid 2000s you'd Ancelotti and Spalletti you know, Carlo Ancelotti and Spalletti were kind of seen as like the two attack-minded coaches and, and Cesare Prandelli to an extent. But I think it was Spalletti's Roma that kind of attracted the hearts and minds of the neutrals and they kind of become everyone's favourite team. Um, and he, in, many, in, in many ways, he was kind of years ahead of the general thinking in Italy because a lot of teams were not ultra-defensive, but defence was, you know, the first port of call and making sure that you were defensively resolute. Um, but Spalletti was like, no, I'm going to attack. And it was a shame that Roma side didn't want to skedaddle because I think everybody would have would have wanted it to be. Well, like you said, it was so tough against that Inter side who were basically handed a dynasty. Don't want to offend Inter listeners here, but we all know what happened after Calciopoli. For those that are too young to remember exactly how it went down chronologically, Inter did sort of like vultures <laughs> jumped in and on, on Juventus's you know corpse and picked out a few of the players and we saw a couple go to La Liga as well but uh, you know Spalletti was able to knock over Real Madrid at the Bernabeu in the Champions League with Roma back then that I think that Real Madrid side had Casillas, Cannavaro, Guti, uh, Raul, uh, Robinho I think that was uh, Bern Schuster's uh, Real Madrid. Yeah, David Beckham was there, Ruud van Nistelrooy was there like it was a, um, if I remember rightly, Real Madrid won La Liga that season. I think that in that that season that might have been no, it was Capello. Capello was the season before, so this was yeah, Burn Sisters, Real Madrid, um, and they won La Liga that year at a canter, and Roma knocked them out. And those names, I mean, that's a big team to go up against in Madrid. Yeah, and if we can correlate that to this season, he's taken Napoli the deepest they've ever been in Champions League in history with the players that have never won a major trophy before. So that's what he's able to do with a mindset of players perhaps second-guessing themselves. Imposter syndrome we've seen with a lot of players coming through the ranks. And I think we've seen that with Napoli over the past 10, 12 years in the ADL era that's sort of started since their return back to Serie A in 2007-08. The way he started his career, he was probably most well-known for what he did with Udinese. He led them to 7th, 6th, and then I think 4th place 
in which he then got poached by Roma to come up and, and take over that Roma side that was struggling at the time. So at Udinese, names like uh, Samir Handanovic, Yaquinta, I think maybe DeSantis or Handanovic, one of them. Dean Natale was there. Dean Michele, maybe? Yeah, I can't remember who exactly was the starting keeper. Handanovic might have been a bit young and in coming through and DeSantis would have been the main one. But like you said, Di Natale, Di Michele, Muzzi, uh, Jorgensen, Muntari. Uh, I think Pizzato was there as well. And I think he would have... Did he bring him over to Roma after that? I can't remember exactly. But No, uh, I think because he got Udinese into the Champions League. Um, yeah, but that Spilani fourth place. Did, yeah. yeah, and then they were in the Champions League. Was it 05, 06? Or 05, no, 2004, 2005. And he got the were in group of Barcelona, and I think I think it was Barcelona, Werder Bremen, and someone else, if memory serves. And they were actually went very close to qualifying for the the round of sixteen for the Champions League, which seems unfathomable now. Udinese, Lezebrete in Champions. Yeah, and uh, but Pizarro went to Inter at the end of uh, that season, but he was only at Inter for a year because Inter being Inter at the time, this was before Calciapoli. Yeah, this is Mancini's first couple of years. He, he didn't play Bizarro in his right position. And so then, he had one year at Inter and Spalletti was like, I'll take you to Roma. And obviously he played him in his right position in a double pivot with Daniele De Rossi and Pizarro was such a lovely footballer to watch. A bit like Lobotka in a way, that, that quick turn, you know, peripheral vision, could pick out a pass, just he was dictated the rhythm of that Roma team. Yeah. And Lobotka's like, busy Lobotka is the David Pizarro of... This Napoli team, yeah, just a no, be- beautiful no, nothing against Labocca, but I think Pizzato was slightly more silky with his ball yeah. through. But still, Labocca, maybe he can yeah. become that kind of player if he's given the freedom to do it. But I don't think he really needs to, considering you've got no, Zielinski. I, I don't th- yeah, I think I think to be honest, I think this Napoli team is arguably better than Spalletti's peak Roma team. Obviously, they don't have Totti, this Napoli team, but I think man for man, if you go across the pitch they're probably better. Yeah. So in that sense, Labadka doesn't really need to be like Pizarro. He's still very... Like Spalletti has moulded him into such a good footballer. And Labadka himself says, you know, Spalletti has had the faith in him that Gattuso didn't and Ancelotti didn't. There may be there's something there with Gennaro Gattuso just subconsciously with other midfielders that play his position. But we won't go into that. This is not psychology <laughs> hour in Serie A. It's uh, about Luciano. And... When he came to Roma, I think it was 2005-06, they were struggling. He got them up to second behind Inter. That happened for, I think, three seasons in a row. And when you look at the what he did with repurposing Totti, I think Totti scored over, I think it was like close to 25 goals in one of the seasons. He, he I think he got around 70 Serie A goals under Spalletti in those three or four seasons at Roma. That was what Totti achieved just individually. And when you kind of try and transpose Roma into Napoli now, you would think that maybe Quadratskelia is that kind of dynamic player. He's been brought in to offer a little bit of pizzazz and the Fuori Classe up forwards. I know Osimhen's there, obviously, but Spalletti never, never really had an Osimhen. He had Vucinic, I remember, but he never really had that bulldozing center forward that can outpace any defender. Spalletti didn't have that at Roma. Maybe that was the difference, apart from going up against an interside that had basically devoured Juventus and then become this institution through re-harnessing power from other clubs to win, I think it was four in a row. Was it four or five? Yeah, uh, yeah, it was four. It was like, yeah, well, I suppose if you, if you count the 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 cardboard that was given <laughs> to Inter from Juve, 
and they celebrated it like the, like they really wanted. I mean, if you count that one, yeah, there was four in a row. Yeah, to, to go back to your point, like about it, you know, Spalletti not having an Aussie man then, I suppose the closest would have been Stefano Okaka, who was young, 1920, I think, in that Roma team. But I think that, that was why Toddy was repurposed as a false nine, because he had a lack of options up front. And he knew Toddy was smart enough to be able to interpret the role in the way that he wanted. Um, whereas I think if he had had an Aussie man, in addition to having Toddy maybe as a, as a natural 10, Roma probably could have did it. Um, and I mean, let's keep in mind that Roma actually were champions for about 30 minutes on the final day of the 2007-08 yeah. season. And Mancini had to drag a half-fit Ibra off the bench at Parma to score two goals to win the title. I ruined the party, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's not compare Okaka to Osim and Victor. If you're listening, we yeah. apologise <laughs> and we hope your career doesn't go that direction. But in saying that, Okaka is a respectable striker in his own right. He's had his moments, three different leagues. But uh, Victor, I'm sure you know, you've got your Scudetto. You are one of the top strikers on the planet. Dear sir, um, so, but that Roma side, Mancini, Perotta, Mexes, Kivu, Tadei, Panucci, De Rossi, Donny in goal, even Chicho Tavano, as we were speaking before the recording of the pod, what a player he was. I don't think he had his best moments at Roma, but it was at Empoli, but still having him off the bench, Vucinic and I guess Okaka, but then they, de- they did decline and obviously nothing lasts forever, especially when you're Roma. Um, you know, if you're not a big three side, it's very tough to, to keep up with the Joneses or to keep up with the Mourinho's back then. So uh, I think he left after they finished sixth behind Inter, Juve, Milan, Fiorentina, Genoa back in their heyday. Yeah, I think it was he, he, he made it into the, the, the beginning of the next season, 2009-10. But I remember Juve beat them 3-1 in Rome. And that was when Diego scored twice, which was the best game that Diego ever played for Juve and I think then they lost the following game and he was he was sacked at basically two games into the 2009-2010 season Claudio Ranieri took over and he almost took Roma then to a title if you remember they were they were at home to Sampdoria and Pazzini scored twice I think and then that basically gave the title to Mourinho's Inter and they won the treble but yeah so Spalletti kind of made it into the beginning of the following season and then was sacked and then he, he went off to, to Russia if memory serves yeah, went off to Zenit. We won't go into Russia. He did win four of his eight pieces of silverware there. This is the first ever Serie A team, Napoli, in 2023 to win the Scudetto while containing players that have never won a Scudetto before. That's something that is incredibly amazing because to have a bunch of players that have never quite been there, there's still a few nearly players there. You've got Zielinski and Mario Rui, who are the only two survivors of Sarri's 2018 side and the others are newbies maybe there was a bit of false bravado false confidence in some of these new players coming in that maybe helped and made up for that I'm not sure but the balance the psychological you know imbalances of previous years compared to this year I mean the main difference from Roma 2008 to Napoli 2023 is that Spalletti had the extra ammunition in in Osserman so maybe that is a big difference from the old days Inter had all the resources back then after Calciopoli sent them on their way. And in 2022, Napoli moved on all their best players that we've already stated. They kind of hit the reset button, Emmett, you know, taking on Juve, Inter and Milan all at once. It wasn't like Roma back then just really taking on Inter because Milan and Juventus had been had their Scudetto hopes dented with points, uh, deductions, lost players as a result of those. You know, Zambrotta 
went here, Cannavaro there. Um, Cannavaro actually part of that Real Madrid side that Spalletti beat back then. You know, they'd all won the Scudetto in the previous three years to this one, Juventus, Inter and Milan. So, you know, add to that the potent Lazio of Maurizio Sarri as another contender. Napoli kind of started this season under the radar. I remember I, I, was, I was about to write an article on Napoli's changes. They've got rid of all these players. Will it be a dark season? And then that week when I was about to write it, they just taken on Raspadori and Simeone. I think it was within a few days of each other. And I changed it to Napoli are now dark horses. They'd actually managed to do it. And that was probably because I had to analyze what do the other teams have to offer at the back? And are they lulled into a false confidence? So I'm not sure if, if false confidence had, had a part to play. I mean, Inter lost. I think up until now, it's what match day 36 coming up and Inter have lost 11 of their Serie A games this season. Yeah, it's ridiculous. To think, to think that Inter is in the top four having lost 11 league games like, <laughs> and they're in the Champions League final. Like, it just, I think, but I think that epitomizes how much Simone and Zaghi's side have become the ultimate cup team. Like, they're brilliant in a one-off game or, you know, two games. But the marathon of the league, they just they, they just can't cope. You know, they like, if you look at that that run, not to go off on a tangent about Simone and Zaghi, they qualified in a group containing Bayern Munich and Barcelona. They've beaten Benfica, they've beaten Porto, they've beaten Milan, swatted them aside over two games. But yet they've lost to Monza, they've lost to Bologna, they've <laughs> lost to Empoli. You know, like everyone's lost to Monza, my friend. Yeah, that is true. Like Monza have taken points off all the big teams in Serie A this season. It's a, I wouldn't say it's a fairy tale story because I mean they're bankrolled by Berlusconi and Galliani, but still, it's still like it's definitely fairy tale for a newly promoted side. Yeah, like I mean they've yeah. took what they beat Juve twice. They took four points off Inter. They've. I'm not sure if they beat Milan, but they beat Napoli last weekend 2-0. I mean, Napoli have nothing to play for at this point, but they still have to go out and perform. <laughs> so, yeah, like, Monza is definitely, we're going way off here, but you get my point. Inter have morphed into this cup team under Simone and Zaghi. And I'm with you, to be honest, last summer, I have to hold my hands up and I didn't, if you'd have said to me last August that Napoli's going to win the league and win it with games to spare I would have said you're crazy <laughs> like after losing Koulibaly after losing Mertens Insignia Fabian Ruiz I would have been like nope oh yeah I, sometimes I wake up and have to slap myself in the face if it's not my partner doing it to me it's myself at the moment <laughs> just thinking that Napoli are the Scudetto holders right now and I, I was a kid when they'd won the other two and your understanding of culture as a kid you got no idea it's just like oh Maradona this De Napoli that, you know, Italia 90, those kind of things. But now it's amazing that they've done this and it's amazing that Luciano Spalletti got them there because it's his third time of winning Serie A Coach of the Year and it's kind of symbolic that it's Napoli's third Scudetto. So I guess hashtag three also applies to Luciano in this regard to the Bulgarelli Awards. He said, this city gives you a blue tan. Questa città ti fa la bronzatura azzurra. It's kind of like as if he got the blue tan and Osiman got the blonde hair. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, blue blue was has been the colour of the whole season, you know. And we've obviously seen, um, you've, you've seen the videos and the pictures that went viral of, you know, pizzas being dyed blue there's actually a neapolitan <laughs> pizza place a restaurant around the corner from where i live um in london and uh, the owners were dyeing all the pizzas blue that have been for like for the last you know couple of weeks 
Um, blue has become the the the, the colour of the season, and I'm not surprised that you know Spalletti's talking about <laughs> having a blue tan. Yeah, pizza bases that are blue. Uh, tell me, Emmett, have you ordered the Juventus pizza base? Is that a poo colour or? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm inspired by something I watched on Bake Off. There was a one of the contestants in the Celebrity Bake Off uh, baked a toilet with poos in there. So I watched that last night. Excuse me, listeners, but we'll move on. Slapping yourself in the face to realise Napoli are the champions. I remember, if we just go back to that point, when it looked dire for them. Not really dire. It just It felt like they were going back to maybe Sassuolo status or Fiorentina. They were going to build and hopefully Kvaratskhelia was going to do something. They, really that worry was there behind Ossiman getting injured again because he, in his previous two seasons he was injured for a long time. He still reached double figures, but he had two months off here, two months off there throughout both seasons, and that was annoying. So that was probably the main task for Spalletti in bringing in reinforcements at the beginning of the season. And I went from not necessarily doom and gloom, but maybe hope for the future in two years I went from that to let's go on this Lego football tour and watch a few games. We watched Napoli in two of those four games. And then what did I do, Emmett? I booked accommodation for June 3rd, 4th, 5th to celebrate the Scudetto in Naples in 2023. And I think despite the hopes, booking that in, in October was rather bold considering the, well, I don't want to say failure of Napoli to win a Scudetto in the past 10 years, but still... We needed them to have a healthy lead. You kept trying to build me up saying, nah, Napoli, you're going to win it the whole time. And I'm like, look, until it's mathematically impossible for someone else. <laughs> but I still went and booked the, the hotels. But, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things we're going. If you're listening to this and you're going to be in Naples on June 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, uh, we leave, but we're going to be there to celebrate Piazza Plebiscito and it's going to be... Come, come say hello, if, if you're a listener to the Lego Football Ball, Yeah, we'll be out in the street somewhere, it's just somewhere. And uh, preferably buy us a spritz. Yeah, we will update, <laughs> yeah, 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 spritzes, spritzes on tap. Let's go back to Spalletti here, I read something in an article, someone asked him if he'd understood Naples on coming there, and he said, when it comes to Naples and the son of Naples, it becomes impossible not to be kissed by this son here. He's so poetic with his words, isn't he? And it gives you a blue tan. It doesn't just darken your skin. It's so eloquent the way he puts it. It's almost a, a profound colloquial way to, to connect with people. Obviously, he said all this in Italian. He had the same goal when he started working to defend the team and the club as much as he could. He then tried to work on the relationship with the environment around him. Naples can give a lot. It's also very dogmatic, Emmett, as we have found out. And it has to be uh, a relationship that is solid with the president. We all know De Laurentiis can <laughs> flip sides. From my point of view, it repays me for the sleepless nights of loving Napoli. I gave my all and also something more. Now, in my own way, I'm extremely happy. I mean, those words there, how can you not love this guy? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, I'm assuming it would sound more beautiful in Italian, but even in English, it is, it's the way, the way that he's, he's understood the, the idiosyncrasies and the, the superstitions of the Neapolitans and he's totally <laughs> in sync with the feeling around the city and like, he would never really utter the word Scudetto because you ask any, you know, Napolitani, oh, you're going to win the Scudetto. Even you, David, like I, I've been saying to you for months, I was like, look, it's Napoli's title. And you're like, no, 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 it's not. It's not our title until we win this amount of games and Napoli would win X amount of games. And I'd say, David, 
it's your title. And you're like, no, 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 no. You know, so being superstitious is, is a Neapolitan speciality. And I think Spalletti is plugged into that, that feeling and that, that way of... You, you would almost say Neapolitans have adapted him as one of their own. A bit like they did with, with Diego, you know, during his... He represented them. Spalletti has understood the Neapolitans and he, he That's understands. difficult to understand yeah. Southerners, especially Neapolitans. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, a, it's a... You know, it's a peculiar... Not peculiar, but it's a special. It's a special city, and it's a special kind of vibe or atmosphere to the city. And the people are different, and they're. It's a different way of living, and I think Spalletti is. You know, he's tuned into that, and he's he has almost become one of them. And obviously, winning the Scudetto helps. <laughs> he's but, got no choice to, but to become one of them, and for sure, he's got the keys to the city. Yeah. I'm not sure which part of the city. Hopefully, it's yeah. not Secondigliano. But yeah. still, <laughs> well, I think you know that's something that uh, De Laurentiis criticised Ancelotti for for not understanding the people and how Neapolitans worked. But he he hasn't thrown that. You know, Spalletti's been the opposite. Spalletti has got Neapolitans, whereas maybe Ancelotti didn't. You know, because I when Ancelotti went in Napoli, I was like, this is going to be a great fit. Napoli need experience. Yeah, Ancelotti, Don Carlo has it in spades. Structure. Yeah, structure, he knows how to win. But it never really, it was a love that never was really strong. It kind of dithered out, you know, like any like teenage romance. Whereas Spalletti has got Neapolitans, he's got the vibe, you know, the ideology of the city, what they stand for. And he's almost, he has become one of them now. Yeah, well, Ancelotti came in after um, good old Sadi left. And I guess Sadi was so creative that creativity can hinder a team if they're too creative. Ancelotti came in to instill a bit more stability. And then I guess when that didn't work out, it was Gattuso. Spalletti to me has the elements of those three put together. He had the exuberance of a Gattuso at one stage. Uh, We saw Sarri start late, but that genius that he has, the Sarri ball style of play, it's almost as if Spalletti's got a little bit of each and made his own specific sugo for a specific pasta that only he knows the recipe for. And we will have a look at this season in particular, but before that, I guess we'll sign off on the connection with the city of Naples. He said, energetic, a little crazy. They live it in a very deep way here. It's a joyous city. It's taught the world how to celebrate a trophy like no other. There was an interview back in 2021 for Inside Serie A that I want to bring up as well. And this was taken of Spalletti while he didn't have a job in coaching in Florence. Uh, so before he took the Napoli job, he said football is the heart of the world and it beats the same everywhere. Uh, and I guess we could relate that to Napoli's away record. They were beating absolutely everywhere, especially away from home. I, I could mention half a dozen goals on the road, Emmett, where they were able to win this Scudetto. I know that you read a piece of mine on this. Fantastic piece it was too. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, on the Gentleman Ultra website. So those goals in particular, Simeone, uh, Ossiman away at Roma. We've got Quadratskelia away at Sassuolo. Uh, we've also got Raspadori away at Juventus. Absolutely critical. Uh, so I guess we can relate it to that statement where football beats the same everywhere. He's clocked up so many miles on the road, he said, and he has the most beautiful emotions through culture. And I guess he was missing that uh, as he was jobless. He was on his farm and he was doing farm things. He grew up on farms and most of his family still live on these. And I guess that gives him that genuine feel as well as a person. Uh, he said he was able to experience big emotions at Roma and Inter, two of the biggest clubs. Football is something that children often dream about. Dreams drop out of the sky. The ladders seem to be made 
for going up to meet those dreams. So he's very poetic once again, even back then when he wasn't involved in doing press conferences week to week. He said, uh, I used to have my kit man ask opposing players for their shirts. So I thought that was ridiculous because he was too ashamed to go up to players after the game and ask for their shirts if they weren't part of his, his side. Obviously, these are teams that have beaten Roma at the time or Inter. He said uh, that I wanted to deliver results to the fans that live for football on a daily basis. And that applies to Neapolitans, especially. They live for their team. It's, uh, I'm not even sure if they live for football. It's just the sniff of that Napoli shirt that is so iconic, thanks to the great Diego uh, making it that way. And he said he's always been attracted to attacking football. Now, this is where I guess we can talk about his strategies. Uh, you know, he said where you're always asking questions of your opponents. That's what he's done this season. And not only has he reinforced in summer, January, he's been able to ask questions of his opponents. Now, of course, he hasn't won every game, but still, decent job to win the Scudetto in match day 33. He also said Serie A has all the important characteristics to send out a worldwide message. I think that's actually true this season. Not sure what your thoughts are, Emmett, but the way that these Italian sides have come through in European competitions. I know that you've been writing on these topics as well. Yeah, I mean, it's weird in a way in the fact that a lot of people have been saying, you know, even like Serie A's official YouTube channel on Twitter, you know, account put out a put out a tweet or a video video package a while back saying you know Calcio is back Calcio is back yeah and I'm like look this is one season we're with you know we're with five teams in the you know in the semi-final across three competitions you know sorry I was doing this regularly enough in the 80s and 90s where there would you know the UEFA Cup at one point was almost like the second Coppa Italia it was just always won by Serie A teams it was all Italian finals seemingly every other year there was always Italian teams getting in the Champions League final. But I would be a bit hesitant to say Calcio was back based off one season. You know, in a lot of cases, not to be a Debbie Downer about it, but you would say the draws for Italian teams across three competitions favoured Serie A teams a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, spe- I'm, especially, I'm especially thinking of the Champions League draw where you'd enter Napoli and Milan and Benfica all on one side of the draw. Um, if if two or three seasons down the line and Serie A is continually getting you know this many teams or even three or four teams into the semi-finals of multiple competitions, then we can have that discussion. Um, but I do think it is a great sign for Italian coaches that so many Italian you know all all the Italian sides are coached by apart from Roma with Jose Mourinho, they're all managed by Italians. Carlo Ancelotti's at Real Madrid, you know. It's it's proof that Italian coaching is the best in the world. It still always has been the best in the world. Um, I think to me that's what the proof is: is that you know even though Italian Italian football isn't everybody's cup of tea. Let's be honest. You know it can put people off. Italian coaching can't be disputed. You know it is for me. It's the best in the world, and you're seeing that now with so many coaches. You know Roberto De Zerbi at Brighton doing a fantastic job and Spalletti's Napoli have been one of the best products of his outlook on the game, his creative impetus that he wants to, you know, put into his sides. And yeah, but I, I'd be hesitant to say that Calcio was back based off of one good season. But And it has been a great season. 
And you have seen like Vincenzo Italiano with Fiorentina play good football. Spalletti's Napoli's played good football. Inzaghi's Inter can play good football given the right circumstance. Uh, Hot and cold. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Allegri's Juve, the less said or not, the better. Uh, but yeah, I do think that Italian coaching is still, you know, at the front, at the top of the class, absolutely. But yeah, I'd be a bit hesitant to say that Calcio was back. Yeah, the coaching is the, the best import for Italian football at the moment. We've seen that in other leagues. Um, another thing that Spalletti said was football is definitely a way to put things right. He was talking about the world post-COVID. I guess he was uh, thinking that it would take the minds, uh, the worries of the, of the people's minds off the pandemic and back into something more positive. He re-emerged to put things right for Napoli, didn't he? Who had suffered a 30-year lockdown in cultural terms. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the the po- the years post Diego were not pretty. You know, you had after you know Napoli's title offence in in nineteen ninety one was awful. Samp won the title that year, and then there was a bit of a brief respite when Marcello Lippi took over and they qualified for the UEFA Cup. Was it ninety three, ninety four, ninety four, ninety five? Yeah, Daniel Fonseca in it at his peak. And then, you know, there was relegation, there was promotion, there was another relegation, and then there was bankruptcy, and then they lost the name, and De Laurentiis came in in 2004, and he bought the brand back again, SSC Napoli, because Napoli had actually lost the right to call themselves SSC Napoli. Um, and it's been a slow ascent to the top of the mountain once again. You know, you had the near misses of Sarri's last season, 2017-2018, when they won, should have won the Scalato then, you know. That, that was the honest, honest scudetto. Oh, the, according to yeah, ADL. Yeah, is right. The, the scudetto of honesty. <laughs> um, you know, Napoli should have won it then. You know, Kulabali's header at home or away at Juventus. You know, that that was the scudetto that they lost in the hotel in Florence. Well, in Napoli's defence, I know that people say that Napoli were already celebrating the scudetto. I don't believe that. I believe that they were celebrating the win over Juventus the way that they were celebrating back at home and if, because Napoli was still one point behind Juve, if I remember correctly. Yeah, exactly. At the time. But I it think, looked th- as though they could steamroll them, yes. Yeah, I think the, the, the general feeling is is that if you remember, Juve played Inter in the Derby d'Italia at San Siro and Napoli yes. were away to Fiorentina the, on the Sunday and yeah, Pjanic somehow didn't get sent off. Higuain, former Napoli player, scores a goal late on. Juve win yeah. 3-2 after being 2-1 down. And basically, Napoli's soul was crushed from Juve coming back. And then the next day, Fiorentina rolled Napoli over 3-0. And Sarri has always said that they lost the Scudetto in a hotel in Florence watching Juve's comeback. So Napoli should have won the title then, you know, that's five years ago. Um, But you know what? The way they've won it now, in the manner that they've did it, Napoli's, or Sarri's Napoli were enterprising, but I think that this Napoli side is better. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Uh, look, back then, still great players, but we've seen a massive turnover. There's only two players that have survived. And in five years, that's actually kind of amazing. That I know that some teams can turn over a lot of players, especially teams that are struggling down the bottom five or six places. Uh, we've seen Genoa with a high turnover of players in previous seasons, and they, you know, they're, they're always struggling. They've been down to Serie B, now they're back, and you can see teams like Salernitana sending 20 players out in the Mercato, bringing in another 23 <laughs> and trying to gamble on who's going to do be the right piece in, on the chessboard. But 
It's a numbers game, Mr. Lernatana. If they buy enough players, 11 of them will do fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and if not, just pick someone from the crowd. But uh, Lernatana, amazing season, by the way. Let's turn just for a moment to Adriano Del Monte. You've all seen him on BT or Stan Sports or Be In, wherever you've seen him around the world. He's always in the stadiums. And seeing as he's there inside the stadiums, I asked him if he felt a difference this season with Spalletti's Napoli of 2022 23 compared to previous seasons this is an interesting one because of course now we've had four different champions in four seasons it's special in itself that and there is something extra special about napoli for all of the history and obviously the maradona links and the fact they haven't won since 1990 there was always something special brewing and really i spoke to a lot of the players in these well in these final weeks of the season and a lot of them really said it wasn't until post world cup when they put five past juventus that they truly believed that this was possible. Wow. So even though they were in a position where they were leading and they looked good and obviously well-rested because not many of their players went to the World Cup, they didn't really start to believe until that point. And so was there something different in terms of inside the stadium and the feeling? Yes, because Napoli is a football city. Yeah. There's nothing, there's no place like it for me in the world, let alone in Europe and Italy, and it's just a place that identifies with culture, identifies with this squad. And as that belief started to, well, I guess, come to the forefront, you really did sense something special was brewing. And every time I went back to Naples, there was more colour, more celebrations quietly beginning in the city, and it led to, well, that fest at the end, which still hasn't stopped and will continue for a long time to come. So... I don't necessarily think it's anything to do with Spalletti or these players, anyone in particular. It's more just the whole journey that they've been on to arrive to this point. Yeah, the journey of belief as the season went on. And we saw Spalletti actually address those that were already claiming the third Scudetto two months, three months in advance. He reassured, and I guess this has to do with his connection with the people of Naples, that they were telling a story that had not yet been written. And Spalletti so eloquently had been speaking in Napolitano dialect. So what were the differences between Spalletti winning with Napoli and Pioli at Milan, Conte at Inter, Sarri at Juve? What do you think, Adriano? That's a nice question. The differences, look, I think they're all in their own right a special story. Sarri at Juve, obviously the end of that cycle. And for Sarri, a wonderful end to, well, not an end, but a wonderful achievement given his tremendous run. Conte at Inter, for Inter, obviously more important than, well, for Conte, but of course the, the controversy surrounding Conte, and obviously ex Juve, special in its own right. Pioli at Milan, Pioli, you know, mid-level manager, no one expected him to do what he did, and that was unique in the fact that Milan suddenly came back to the, the top of Italian football. But for Spalletti, it was it was something else because there are many factors that, again, just from observing, obviously Spalletti has always done very well without being overly successful. So for he personally, coupling that with Napoli and their lack of, of silverware over the journey and combining all of that with the passion of that city, as I said, we're going to be very hard-pressed to find a story that rivals this in years to come. No one gave Napoli a chance of winning it this season. Many even said they'd fall out of the top four. They wouldn't be in Champions League next season. 
So I think for for Spalletti, for the club, the, the acquisitions, obviously, the bold decisions that they made in terms of removing some of their star players, legends of the club, and the boldness in which they replaced them with with younger players, lesser experienced players that they truly believed in. I think they've really set the tone. They've set an example for the other clubs in Italy. Now, whether they come in next season as favourites to defend their title, time will tell, but no one will be able to take away from the incredible 12-month period it has been for this club. So in contrast to Sarri, Conte and Pioli in those respective championships with Juve, Inter and Milan, I think they've really shown a progressive approach on how you can be successful in football and in Italy, as we've often discussed, progressive mentalities and boldness like this, we haven't seen too much of it. So I'm really impressed with what Napoli have done and I hope other clubs take some positives and take some lessons from what they've done, implemented in their respective squads and hopefully we see the competition improve as a result going forward. Absolutely. Amen to that, Adriano. And yeah, no one can take that away from Napoli. No one can take that away from Luciano Spalletti. Once again, Adriano Del Monte. Let's turn to some of Luciano Spalletti's accolades. Eight pieces of silverware, which include Supercoppe, the Italian Cups. He's got four in total in Italy and the other four in the Russian league. He got a couple of uh, Russian titles, uh, league titles with Zenit. On a personal level, he's won Serie A Coach of the Month four times this season. Uh, a Panchina d'Oro for his superb season at Udinese in 2004-05. Serie A Coach of the Year for a third time in 2022-23. He's now uh, surpassed Mourinho, Ancelotti, Gasparini, who have two each. He's now level with Marcello Lippi on three. Only Conte and Allegri have four each, but... As a point you mentioned before, they were at Juventus, and in Conte's case, um, Juventus and Inter. So amazingly, across 17 years, he's got these three different titles. And two of those were, I think, uh, 2007 and eight, And then he's won it 15 years later in 2023. The only Napoli coach to have won this award since its inception in 1997. So that's another breakthrough for Napoli, the club. Um Emmett, I've got a question here. Is he the best Italian coach in Serie A? I mean, this season, are you talking this season or just in general? Oh, let's talk uh, contemporary football. Yeah, this season. I, I think you would, you would have to say yes. I'm talking about overall. If you look at the season overall, because at the moment you could argue maybe Inzaghi's the best coach, but that's in a knockout competition in Coppa Italia, in Champions League. Let's talk about the overall picture, considering the 35 uh, match days we've had, plus the European season. The, the only blot, you would say, on his record this season is the fact that Napoli lost to Milan in the Champions League quarterfinal. Because, I mean, if we all, with all due respect to the Milanisti that listen to this pod... There's no way that Napoli should have lost to Milan. A lot of things went Milan's way. Let's yeah, let's, exactly. Yeah. Um, that that's the only blot. You know, by by all accounts, it should have been a Napoli Inter semi final. There's no there, there should be no argument about that. But across the season, I think in the manner in which Napoli have won the Scudetto, you know, with what five games left. You know, th- when they won it, there was five games remaining. Obviously, now there's three as we're recording this. Um, the manner in which they played, you know, they blitzed everybody in Europe up until the Milan game the style that they did it the, the way that they destroy Juve in Naples 5-1 I 
I think you have to say Spalletti is the best coach. He's definitely the coach of the year, fully deserved. He is definitely the best coach in Serie A this season by far, and I don't think there can be many arguments otherwise. I think the only blemish for me on Spalletti's season would be, uh, we can kind of contextualise by turning back the clock. Before they struggled to win a Scudetto, and finally he's been able to get them there. Now it's as if with the Champions League, they had that former block with the the mental block with the Scudetto and apply that to Champions League. Maybe he can get them one because ADL's professing that one's coming. That was in an interview with CBS after winning the Scudetto a couple of weeks ago. For me against Milan, okay, he was without three strikers in the first leg away at Milan, but he played Elmas as the false nine. He still had Quadratskelia. He still had the likes of Lozano, Politano. So there was still some ammunition. Mike Magnan was superb, let's yeah. be honest. If it Magic wasn't for Mike. him, they probably would have easily lost. Um, and I'd say without Magnan, I would think that they would have struggled to win last season's Scudetto. And also, uh, if they did make the top four last year without Magnan, they would have struggled in the group stage like we'd seen previously in Champions League. Nothing against Milan because I think they, it's like buying Quadratskelia. You just happen to buy a player that's world-class for a good price. You bring them in and it's just turned out that they're amazing. So credit where credit's due for Milan. However, if it wasn't for Maignan and a couple of schoolboy errors for Napoli and the fact that in the first leg they were lacking Osimhen, Raspadori and Simeone, I think Raspadori might have come on for the last 15 minutes or so, but he was still struggling with injury. But Spalletti, for me, he kind of lets me down where he wants to play so wide for so much of the game. I'd prefer to see Simeone come on. We, we saw it against Monza on the weekend, albeit they lost, but he was willing to try and sort of go gung-ho towards the end. If you're struggling, because Osman was isolated, uh, I'm writing an article on this because to me, Milan have copied what Sarri did in his recipe to beat Napoli at the Maradona 1-0. Milan did it to Napoli in April with the two wins and the draw where all they did was play this kind of Lato Nacho game. It's not Catenaccio in its correct form. It's, it's now, it's not exactly parking the bus. It's moving the bus around the pitch to block whoever's got the ball, whoever's dangerous. So if Kvaratskeli is obviously the danger man and Osman's the other, they pose more danger than Napolitano. Well, Osiman, let's triple team him and then let's send two or three over to the left wing of Napoli. So Calabria, uh, uh, Krunic, whoever's available. Brahim Diaz was coming back to, to, to double team him. And occasionally, Kvartaskeli will get through him. And we saw that. He just put his chances over the top of the goal. The way that Spalletti was unable to respond, I can't take credit away from Pioli for predicting what Spalletti would do. And Spalletti's done it to other coaches through the season. But I would like to see Osman with more support behind him instead of just Jelinski sort of hovering around the box or maybe Angisa for the odd header. I would have preferred to see two strikers in there or at least a small seconda punta, even with Kvaratskelia and Politano on the pitch at the same time or whoever's playing on the right side of attack. So that for me was the only down point where I thought in that Champions League you got outdone because Osman was so isolated for so long. And Osman was back from injury at the time as well. So he didn't have 100% capacity. He's probably at 60%, which is still really dangerous. But still, that was the only thing for me. Another question here. Is Spalletti the best Italian coach anywhere in the world this season? 
and let's talk about Deserbi and Ancelotti. Is Spalletti better than them? I think it would depend on how Ancelotti does tonight and if he retains the Champions League. Um, because in the Liga, they, they've come second by yeah. a fair distance to Barcelona. Yeah, exactly. And I think Ancelotti's. De- I think those three are definitely in the conversation. Deserbi, the job he's done at Brighton is unbelievable. So. As it stands, I would probably, as of recording this, we're recording this with kickoff in the Madrid and Man City game about two hours out. I would say at the moment it's between De Zerbi and Spalletti to be the best Italian coach in the world right now. Yet, if Ancelotti pulls off a classic Carlo performance and Madrid get through, and you probably would fancy him against Inter, then you'd have to probably tip your hat off to the the Carlo, to Don Carlo for winning two consecutive Champions League trophies. It would be what it be his fifth. Yeah, fifth. Yeah. Champions League, you know, two in Milan, three in Madrid. Then you'd have to say Ancelotti probably is the best in the world. But as of right now, I would say it's between De Zerbi and Spalletti. Yeah, Ancelotti is the current UEFA Coach of the Year. Let's not forget that, and he also yeah. has the current UEFA Player of the Year in Karim Benzema. So he does have that luxury of having a Real Madrid at his fingertips whereas to me a Deserbi has come in to have slim pickings okay Graham Potter got Brighton to a, a decent level however um, they did sell players in the January window They've done a couple of Brighton games this season and they've looked good they beat Arsenal on the weekend 3-0 uh, they've dispatched so many high profile clubs in England and with the kind of squad that he wouldn't fancy to walk in on if you were about to take a Premier League job. And Spalletti, I guess, the same elements there with so many unproven players to put those together and come up with a winning formula. Uh, the chemistry that you sort of need to tinker with in the lab. You know, I, I don't know if there's some kind of complex scientific model that these guys go into pre-season and, and, and use data points of uh, previous seasons to construct their specific formulas. But I'm sure someone out there is doing it and selling that information. It's worth a lot, especially considering the uh, oil money in football these days. Uh, but yeah, I have to agree. Deserbi for me and Spalletti are the two best Italian coaches at this point. There will be lots of people that want to interject or screaming at their headphones right now as they're listening. For me, and I know Inter fans will think that Simone Inzaghi is putting his hand up. He is, absolutely. But his steady art performance this season and last season, there is no doubt in my mind, and I think Pioli said this, I think lots of other pundits and coaches have said this, Inter have the strongest squad in Serie A in Italy more than any other side. Spalletti has managed to overcome that. And so is Juventus, amazingly. I, I guess Allegri has to be in the mix because he's led Juventus through a turbulent season, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, that, and that's putting it gainly. Well, I mean, look, uh, Allegri's always spoken about where Juventus are in terms of being on the pitch, winning points on the pitch, scoring goals on the pitch. They don't score too many goals, but they get lots of points in terms of um, at least this season. Let's, let's put it into context. It's, it's not the greatest season for Juve, Milan or Inter in accruing league points, but he's done better than the other two in Pioli and Inzaghi. He's done better than Mourinho. He's done better than Sarri as well. So yeah. credit where credit's and I think, due. And I think you do have to give credit to Allegri in the fact that, yes, the football is difficult to watch. Like, Oh, yeah. If anybody, if any of our listeners has ever watched a Juventus game this season, it is a tough, tough. Yeah, watch. I've, d- I've done half a dozen Juventus games this season. I'm doing 
Juventus uh, away at Sevilla tomorrow night as well, and it's it's going to be tough to watch. Yeah, it's a grind. But I will say in Allegri's favour that he's been without Chiesa for the majority of yeah. the season. Paul Pogba's played about three minutes all season, and now he's out probably for the rest of and it. he still managed second place. And he's, yeah, and he's still like... Yeah, pending points, he still managed to get second with a very average, mundane, workman-like team. So you have to give Allegri credit for that because other managers probably, and then given the points penalty, the effect that could have had on the team. You know, another manager, Juve, could be sitting down in mid-table or in the bottom half of the table, but Allegri didn't let that happen. So you have to give him his due there. Yeah, absolutely. I agree on that. And I guess you need a, a, a stiff mind at the forefront of a club that's struggling, especially when they've got the, I don't want to say superiority complex, but you know where I'm going with this. Juventus, you know, the most winningest club in Italian history. Uh, yeah. And they... Juve always think they're Juve. Yeah. And with that comes... Juventus think they uh, are Calcio, but still. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to flip this around on you. I'm going to ask you a question, sure. right? So they always say that getting to the top is the easy part. Staying there is the most difficult part. Do you think Napoli, because we've talked about this off air before, that I believe that the scene, if Napoli can keep their team together, the scene is set for Napoli to kind of build a mini dynasty here, considering the problems that Inter, Milan and Juve have. Do you think that Napoli can retain the title next year and go on, and go even further in the Champions League. Where do you think the limit is for this team? Just let me make a point here. Now, look, I know that you're a valued part of this pod and of Lego Football. I organise these pods, mate. No questions directed at me. <laughs> um, I ask the questions here. I ask the questions here. We're a team, but we do it my way. Do you think that Napoli can stay at the top? I think they can. And I think you've made some very valid points in one of your recent articles on Forbes, where you ask the questions. I think it's a matter of retaining the talent as it is with any key successful model of of any business. I think Ossiman obviously is a crucial figure in staying. I think there are other elements that are more crucial than that. It's not just Spalletti. There's Juntoli there. There's key players. I think Giovanni Di Lorenzo is a massive, massive part of this Scudetto. And I haven't really mentioned him much, but he's the captain, first captain, since Maradona, the only other captain to ever win a Scudetto for Napoli. Let's put him in that category there with a very special man. There are players, Labocca for me. If, if people come in with big money offers that are ridiculous, of course they're going to be sold. You know, Napoli is not PSG. They will sell for the right price and Osman and Kabatskelia could well go. But in saying that, they can reinvest that money and stay at the top. And I think they can do it in Serie A because apart from Inter moving forward and Inter might get rid of a few of their older heads. I don't want to say old players because they're still great players, but we will see them, whether they keep Lukaku, they might based on his current form. But for me, Inter is probably the biggest player at this point in Calcio. It's always about if Inter are going to win or lose the Scudetto and who's going to take it away from them. It happened to be Milan because the you know it was basically a street fight when Milan took it away from Inter. But the way that they took the reins from Juventus was actually quite impressive. And uh, since then, they lost Hakimi. So it's all about retention. We can see big players that leave, come and go. Lukaku left, Hakimi left, Inter didn't do as well. And then they probably still should have won. It was their Scudetto that they lost last season as well. 
and Pioli snatched it from them and Milan were just good when it counted. They don't have what an Inter has. I don't believe they have what Napoli has. They do have great players as well. Teo Hernandez, I really rate him, uh, especially in, a, in an attacking sense. <laughs> but um, can Napoli do it? It's all about, I think they can. I think they can. I mean, should the short and sweet. I've given you the long and hard and I'm going to give you the short and sweet now, buddy. <laughs> It's not the first time someone said that to you, I'm, I'm sure, mate. But, uh, yeah, it's all about if Juntili leaves, and I, I, I've heard that he's going to your mob up in Turin. So the sporting director is a massive component here. It is whether Spalletti stays. We will dabble on his future. Apparently he's re-signed and apparently he put a mask on to get to the meeting so he could sign a new contract. But I think you were telling me off air, and I'll bring this up now, that Spalletti wants an increased contract, but ADL has just enacted the, the option to extend for Spalletti at the current wage. So that might cause a rift. Yeah, exactly. Um, obviously, when Spalletti joined, he, he signed a two-year, which is pretty much standard for Italian coaches in Serie A. They signed a two-year deal with the option for you know a third year. I'm not sure of the particulars, but I think De Laurentiis activated it without actually discussing with Spalletti, you know, that he was going to activate the third year and obviously, you know, secure Napoli's first title for 33 years. Spalletti, you know, understandably wanted a, a pay raise. He gets around €3 million Euros a season. Um, and so I think there's, there's discussions going to be held between Spalletti and De Laurentiis, not just over his wage structure, um, but obviously, you know, Napoli going forward, what can they do in the transfer window? I think the key is to keep, you know, all their big players. You know, we've seen this week a lot about Kim Min Jae being linked to Man United and Man United going to activate his release clause, which is valid only for, for the first two weeks in July. Napoli can maybe lose one or two, but any more than that. And then you start to think, you know, because the way, when you look at it, Lazio won the Scudetto 2000. They didn't retain it. You know, they finished third the following season. Roma then won the title the following season after Lazio. Roma finished second, never attained it. Nobody outside of Juventus, even Inter Milan, when they won the Scudetto in the 21st century, they've never retained it. Yes, Inter did when they had that, you know, that that 2006 to 2010 period, but there wasn't really a credible challenger for a Let's lot call of Let's that the upside-down period um, of, of Serie A. Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. Stranger Things period of Serie A where there was no credible U in Kievo in the top four. Um, <laughs> so that was like a, a crazy time in the world of Calcio. But, uh, um, but you know, outside of Juve, Juve doing that nine in a row, nobody has retained it. So Napoli need... It's more difficult. You know, winning it the once is the easy part. Staying there is the most difficult part. And even, you know, Napoli... Reached, reaching the quarterfinals of the Champions League, you know that, that that's earned them around seventy million euros in UEFA prize money. De Laurentiis, as we know, is a shrewd, canny operator. Doesn't spend, or he doesn't get over his head and spend, and he doesn't do an Inter. You know, Inter, I think they're around about four hundred million euros yeah. in debt. Even with this run to the Champions League final, they've banked about a hundred million. But you'd imagine they're still going to have to let players go to balance the books. Whereas Napoli are run, you know, fiscally, or they're fiscally sound. So De Laurentiis has money to spend. It's just whether he's willing to. So I'll ask you another question: What positions in that from that one to eleven, where would you like to see improve? If we're being honest, I know Mario Rui's like a cult hero, but I would think Napoli need a better left back and another 
maybe cover for Charles Velia on the left. Chucky Lozano should be sold as soon as the transfer window was opened and another right-sided midfielder. Yeah, I think Lozano could leave and I think that is also... I think they've got some talent in the back of their mind that might be currently on the books but not getting minutes or out on loan that they think that they could possibly bring in as backup for a Politano. I think Politano has done enough to keep his spot on the right. But when you want to win a Champions League, and I can't believe I'm talking about this in Napoli terms, but um, <laughs> you need a world-class keeper. So if Magnan was in the Napoli goal against Milan, if we swapped them over, and Mamoret tried to save from Benacer with his foot, and I really do rate Alex Merritt. I've always thought he was great, but I'm talking about Champions League winning material now, not just Serie I've always believed that Alex Merritt was good enough to play and be the main keeper at Napoli. But there are nuances in abilities of specific players. And I'm sure even if we dissected Victor Ossiman, compared him to a Benzema or an Erling Haaland, they have their pros and cons, or they're better at some things and, and not as good as, as uh, the others at other things. So... My issue is a backup for Labotka that's worthy. Now, can they repurpose someone? Can I know Angisa can play as a pivot, but I'm not sure he can play the same role with the same effect as what a Labotka could. I know Diego Dem could probably go. I think Lozano could go. Uh, I'm not sure about um, Zanoli coming back from his loan from Sampdoria. He has been outstanding. He scored a couple of goals now but I don't think he suits a four-man backline. I think he suits a three-man backline and he plays as a right-sided midfielder, right wing back, that kind of thing. That's where he seems to be at at this point in his career and he's very young. And I don't know if Napoli can retain the Scudetto by using him as backup for Di Lorenzo. And is he better suited going out on loan again? I don't know if he'll stay with Sampdoria because I think he's better than uh, going down a division. But... Yes, they need cover for Di Lorenzo. I will absolutely admit that. I think Di Lorenzo is great because he can also play as a central defender and a left-sided defender if needed. I'd say Matias Oliveira is good enough to stay. And I think he is that Di Lorenzo mold. If you wanted another Di Lorenzo in your side to play on the left, I think if you line them up next to each other, they're fairly identical. It's just that one is Giovanni Di Lorenzo and the other one is Matias Oliveira. I think Oliveira is a great <laughs> defender, but when we compare him to Kim and Di Lorenzo, he's always going to come off in a different category. But I think he's been great when he's been utilized this season. And I think Spalletti's brought him through at the correct rate of knots, not rushing him into too many big games unless absolutely necessary if Rui is injured, such as now. I think he's out for the rest of the season. So he will find out in these next three or four games. Uh, I wrote a piece on this for Forza Napoli Press where Spalletti might start to tinker with the formation. And we saw that against Monza already. I'm hoping that he's, he might bring in Ostergaard. And I think Ostergaard may be able to be used as a right back. Uh, at Genoa, he was used in a three-man back line. But he may be able to peel off and be used as a right back against... Uh, who did he play against recently where he started? Fiorentina. I did see him up and down that right touch line occasionally. That's the natural shift of the Napoli defence, or any defence for that matter, if you play four at the back. One you know, your right back, such as Di Lorenzo, might push up, and then your right centre-back covers the right-back zone on the pitch. But I also saw Ostergaard able to get forward and, and offer something. He's not the best with the ball at his feet in terms of creating play. 
nothing like a Romani or a Kim, but I think he has potential. Juan Jesus, I think keep him at the club because he's a valuable squad player and he will give you 10 to 15 games a season and he will start when needed. And he's got that experience. So, you know, he played a lot of years with Roma, a lot of years with Inter. He's played under Spalletti for a while. He is a soldier of Spalletti. So (laughs) technically he's one of the immortals, Emmett, believe it or not. Juan Jesus (laughs) is up there with the likes of Careca and Alemão now. So... Uh, and then Mortale. Another Ciro Di Marzio. Um, not necessarily the assassin that uh, Ciro Di Marzio <laughs> was, but uh, we'll leave that up with the Quaratschelli and Ossiman who scored a bag of goals. But Well, here's, here, here's another poser for you. I'm turning the tables now. <laughs> Obviously, Koulibaly left last summer and went to Chelsea. And this time in Chelsea really hasn't been... I'll take him back, Emmett. Counts. I will take him back. I was going to say, if he was if he was offered to Napoli on loan in the summer, would you take Absolutely. Him back? Absolutely. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Absolutely. I think if you if you rang Kalidou now, he would come back begging to say, "Can yeah. I be part of this?" Like, because he actually stated, "I'm leaving Napoli to win titles," and that backfired yeah. like a bitch. Yeah, penny for penny for his thoughts as on the on the Monday after Napoli won the Scudetto, like he was there for eight years and then the season he leaves Napoli win the yeah. title. If there if there were two players I could bring back to win this, it'd be Dries Mertens and Kalidou Koulibaly, because th- yeah. those two are very very important for even getting Napoli to this Scudetto. If it wasn't for the contributions of those two, I mean Napoli would have declined. And the players, the, even in an Osimhen that was kind of unproven coming over from Lille in the French league. I think he was only there for one year. Before that, he was in the Belgian league. He didn't have the best run at Werder Bremen. Would he have come to Napoli if they didn't have the tradition of Cavani? I don't want to say Gonzalo's surname. And then, (laughs) and then Dries Mertens. I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, And I don't think other players would have stuck around if there wasn't this uh, project that has taken so long to get them to a Scudetto. And sure, they should have had one five years earlier. But like I said, this is a Scudetto that was one hands down. Well, I've told you this. And Napoli should have had the 2018 Scudetto if it was an honest one. And I'm just quoting other players and, and people at Emmett. So I know Juventus won it that season, but um, the undercover Juventino himself, uh, Emmett Gates, if you want to see him in action in, in Naples with me threatening to out him as a Juve boy, you can check out the Lego Football Maradona Tour. I will take Kalidou Koulibaly back. No problem. Open arms. And I'm sure he really cares what I think. But yes, absolutely. If I was running the club, if I take Juntali's job in the summer, he'd be the first person I'm calling. Come on, mate. You can do it. You can come back. Uh, I don't know what kind of budget I would put aside to get him back. But if Kim left, then I'd really be thinking about calling Chelsea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Uh, another uh, point I wanted to bring up is with the elements of this team to keep it together to try and challenge for another Scudetto next season. Do you think Aurelio De Laurentiis would be ballsy enough to get rid of half the team again and then win it again? Ah, uh, no, that's too far. You you do you do that you do that revolution once. You don't do it twice. I mean, Juve kind of famously did it in the nineties. When you know this old Robbie Baggio after winning the Scudetto the first in nine years in '95, then they did it in '96 when they sold Viali, Ravanelli, Palosusa, then they did it in '97 when they sold Christian Vieri. I don't know if you do it 
I don't know if you would copy that Juve model. Uh, I think you, you, you basically need to keep the team and add to it at this point because it's a very young team. It's a nice blend of experience and youth, mostly youth. They've all won the Scudetto together. I think you keep the team, you add just a couple of more players and that's it. Don't tinker too much. Not a more of a evolution than a revolution. Yeah, I agree with you. You just never know if they would do that again. I doubt it. ADL has specified that he'd like to hang on to the majority of this team so that they could challenge for the Champions League. I spoke to, seeing as I mentioned Forza Napoli Press before, I spoke to the editor of Forza Napoli Press and also the host of Forza Napoli Pod, Joe Fischetti. I asked him, is Spalletti the best coach that Napoli has had? And was he a little bit lucky? What was different for him compared to Sari or any similarities to Bigon or Bianchi? And here's what he had Hi to say. Hi, everyone. This is Joe Fischetti of the Forza Napoli podcast and ForzaNapoliPress.com. Is Luciano Spalletti the best coach that Napoli has had? That is a difficult question to answer, but he certainly has to be up there. It's hard for me to compare him to the previous two Scudetto winning coaches in Ottavio Bianchi and Alberto Bigon for a couple of reasons. First, I was too young back then to truly appreciate how those Napoli sides played, but even with all of the highlights and all of the old matches that I've watched, it's hard to compare because the game was so different back then from the style of play to how it was officiated and everything in between. And of course, those two coaches had one of, if not the greatest footballer of all time in Diego Armando Maradona. For me, that's the biggest difference between the previous Scudetto winning Napoli sides and the current one. Those sides had one player who seemed to make everyone else better. And that's not to discredit the other players. In 86-87, you had Bruscolotti, Ferrara, Renica, Bagni, Danapoli, Carnevale, and Giordano. In 89-90, you had a few more in Corradini, Francini, Alemão, Massimo Mauro, Zola, Careca. They were all fantastic players, but they were still playing with an absolute legend of the game. You could probably remove any one of those players other than Maradona, of course, and there was still a good chance that Napoli would have won Los Scudetti. This season's Napoli felt like more of a collective, and it felt like there were a number of players who, if you removed any one of them, Napoli probably would not have won the Scudetto. I'm thinking of Kim Min Jae, Giovanni Di Lorenzo, Stanislav Lobotka, Andre Frank Zombangisa, Kwicha Kvaraschelia, and Victor Osiman. And then there were a number of really good players, really important players around them, like Amir Rachmani, Piotr Zielinski, Ali Felmas, and Giacomo Raspadori. Now, it's one thing to have the players, it's an altogether different thing to have them implement a system. We can give Cristiano Giuntoli the credit for giving Spalletti the tools and the parts, but it's Spalletti who made the whole greater than the sum of those parts. He's the one who created this fluid, high-pressing, high-intensity system. He's the one who developed some of these guys into star players, like Lobotka being the key example. It's no surprise that Osimen is on the verge of winning Capo Canoniere because Spalletti's strikers always thrive in his system, and it's Spalletti who adapted his tactics to remove certain weaknesses, like not relying on Alex Meret to play the ball with his feet. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, Spalletti changed the mentality of this club. Now, perhaps that was due to the turnover in players. It was as if the guys who had heavy weights on their shoulders, Koulibaly, Insignia, Mertens, and so on, 
took those weights with them when they departed Napoli, and they were replaced by players who were perhaps a little naive and didn't feel that weight until the end of the season, but Spalletti played a key role in changing the mentality of the club. The first thing he did when he joined Napoli was to have the lyrics of Saro Conte printed on the training bibs. He was always focused on making the fans happy as the primary goal, but he was never going to be bullied by them. In fact, he put the accountability on the ultras when they staged a silent protest for the Milan match. I still think Maurizio Sarri also has to be up there in terms of the best Napoli coaches ever. I mean, Spalletti did not have to contend with a 95-point Juventus team. Spalletti did have competition last season, and for various reasons, Napoli buckled. So perhaps in that sense, Spalletti was a little bit fortunate when you consider how many points our rivals dropped this season. However, with all the great coaches Napoli have had over the years, from Eddie Rea to Walter Mazzari, Rafa Benitez, Sadi, as I mentioned, Ancelotti, who had the name but perhaps wasn't a great coach for Napoli, and even Gattuso, who did quite well, Spalletti is the only Napoli coach to win a Scudetto without Maradona, so I think he deserves all the credit in the world. Oh yeah, he absolutely does. Beautifully summed up by Joe Fischetti of the Forza Napoli pod and Forza Napoli press. This is the Sado Conte song that Joe referred to. Such great work over on the Forza Napoli pod as well. He's such an eloquent speaker, as you've heard, and he sums it up wonderfully well. I have to agree with a lot of Joe's points and have to give credit to not just Spalletti, of course, he's the master chef that cooked up this wonderful feast for Napoli fans, but also Juntili, but especially Aurelio De Laurentiis. It's been tough going since the get-go. I remember in that CBS interview that he had a couple of weeks back, he was saying how he won the auction, spending 37 million euros to buy the club. And then he said, well, I just bought the name. I still had to, to put the club together. He didn't even have balls, bibs, nothing. So he has built this little empire and I guess he had a couple of goals he wanted to win the Scudetto in the first 20 years he's done it so congratulations to him but he has done it thanks to bringing in Luciano Spalletti which is the topic of this pod but Emmett last preseason, uh, I think it was in Castel di Sangro it might have been at Castel Volturno where the Napoli training center is I remember they were playing a friendly game and there were a bunch of fans, some screaming out, oh, you know, what are you doing, Spalletti? You've got rid of this player, that player. You know, you don't have a plan going forward. You know, it was the plebs that were didn't have faith in the manager or the club. And so we're there to, to complain. And one of the fans played a trick on Spalletti. He handed him a hat. I don't know if you saw this footage, but I'll send it to you if you haven't seen it. It is a hat that is has a specific sponsor on it, we'll, we'll say. It's a Pornhub hat. And they gave it to Spalletti. And without him looking at it, he put it on his head. And then they continued to film Spalletti walking around with a Pornhub hat on. <laughs> so I guess that was a sign of things to come because basically he gave it to every other club in Serie A this season. Exactly. He... And I think that's a great note to end on, don't you? <laughs> Spalletti has given it to everyone. That hat probably kicked it all off. So whoever gave him that hat, well done. Congratulations to you. You're just as important to Napoli Scudetto. I haven't seen those hats in the little markets that you see on the streets of, of Napoli. But um, that was definitely an omen for the other clubs this season. And basically, he flew them over. 
So I'll probably have to put a beep over that word, Emmett. But uh, yes, stay tuned for our next trip to Naples coming up on the final day of the Serie A season. That is Napoli Sampdoria. Emmett Gates, thanks for joining as usual. Brilliant to have you on. No problem. David, a pleasure as always. Look forward to reading all your stuff on Forbes. Also, you've got a another article out. You were just uh, writing on the great Sheva. You interviewed Andrei Shevchenko. I'm very jealous. Uh, great piece for The Guardian. So for those of you who want to read more of Emmett's work or hear his lovely voice, I will leave the links in the show description. Also, going back to the Napoli trip, you did shut up on a Neapolitan woman last time we were there, and that footage is available. (laughs) I think it's part seven of the Maradona tour that we've got up and about at the moment. So if you haven't seen that, go over to our Twitter page. It's at Lega Football. And you can also find us on TikTok and Facebook. Uh, No Instagram at the moment because just haven't put that one together. Uh, At Emmett Gates on Twitter. You can find Emmett. And he also writes for The Gentleman Ultra. Uh, So Emmett, once again, thanks for joining. Pleasure, buddy. This is Lego Football.